There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The issue, more than anything, is the financialization of this market has actually produced worse quality homes. Because money is being extracted at every, every level, um, the, 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 the product at the end of it is of very poor quality. A quarter of a million people living homeless in the UK. A whole generation stuck in rent, unable to own their homes. Record levels of household debt. Millions of people stuck in toxic or abusive relationships. Crisis in our care system. An epidemic of loneliness, especially among the elderly. One in three UK children growing up in poverty, a growing mental health crisis, systemic racial injustice, flatlining economic productivity, persistently low levels of investment into innovation, failing high streets, failing small businesses, dim, ugly and unsustainable new homes, dormitory neighbourhoods with poor or no community infrastructure at all, a loss of biodiversity and at least 45% of our entire carbon emissions. What do all of these things have in common? The answer is they all have their roots in our land system. This is the Open City Podcast, a show about the past, present and future of London. It features new stories about the city and fresh perspectives on the challenges and opportunities we face together. Hi, welcome to the Open City Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Cave, and I'm joined by my co-host, Arman Nouri. The voices you heard at the beginning was that of Emma Dentcode and Alistair Parvin. Emma was the guest on our first episode asking, why is architecture so political? We talked about how the housing crisis, Grenfell and dodgy estate regeneration reflect a disease in how our political system treats housing, not as a public good, as it should be, but rather something else a burden, an expendable, an afterthought. We are following on from that episode and asking what role does land play in making our urban landscape so political? Arman and I spoke to Alistair, founder of Open Systems Lab, a non-profit research and development company working in open innovation for the built environment. Later, we speak to Anurag, chairman of the Community Land Trust, Ross in Lewisham, who will shed light on how things can be done differently. So, Zoe... What do we know so far? The UK is said to be in a housing crisis. Simply, this means that there aren't enough houses for those that need it, and the housing stock we have is of poor quality. So as less people can afford to buy, more people are forced to privately rent. 
But as it stands, the private rental sector is pretty much unregulated. This means that prices increase or inflate with no upper limit as the demand increases. But there is nothing to govern that the standard of what is on offer reflects that inflation. Having such a high demand for housing not only creates inflated prices, but it also undermines the bargaining power of people who rent. So, for instance, if tenants don't like what they have, there will probably always be someone else to replace them. This means that landlords hold considerable power over their tenants, and this is demonstrated by Citizens Advice research that found that 46% of private renters who complained about poor conditions like damp and mould were evicted within six months of that complaint. At first glance, this feels like quite straightforward economics. The demand is high, the product is limited and unregulated, which creates a real power discrepancy. By very crude economic theory, we need more housing. That way, it will become cheaper to buy, less people will need to rent, and those that do will be in a better position to negotiate and bring the rent down and the standards up. The charity Shelter in 2018 conducted a cross-party report that concluded 3.1 million houses need to be built by 2040 to meet the demand. If only things were so simple. And the big reason why they aren't so simple comes down to our understanding of the economics of land and by extension housing, which represents by far the biggest use of land around the world. There are some straightforward explanations as to why the classic laws of demand and supply don't apply to land, as they do to other key factors of production like capital and labour. Firstly, land is immobile, it doesn't move, it is the place itself. Secondly, the supply of land is fixed. We can't make any more of it, with the tiny exception of reclaiming parts of the sea, perhaps. Thirdly, it is eternal. Again, with exceptions in place for the effects of climate change, such as coastal erosion, it will always be here. And finally, and this is perhaps the most important factor to be mindful of, without land, nothing else can be produced, whether capital, labour, or even life itself. And that's why we can't think about land in terms of just supply and demand. Classical economic theory has by and large ignored land. And as Alistair's opening monologue showed, understanding land is fundamental to understanding the societies and communities we are a part of. It's a massive topic. And this episode of the Open City podcast aims to introduce you to why land isn't about muddy fields out in Shropshire, but about an overwhelming system of law, governance, global finance and capital, all of which are felt most acutely in our urban settings. This is such an acute urban issue because cities by their very nature are a defined space, an area of land that is densely populated with lots of different people. Space is limited and so we are all packed in, living side by side. Cities are diverse, heterogeneous places, They are also very unequal places. They are made up of different people with different identities, needs and interests. And because space in the city is limited, these different interests are always in competition with each other. But part of the wonder of the city that sociologists, anthropologists and urban thinkers have been so interested in is that despite competing interests, we all take part, feed into and take from the different social and economic processes of the city. Labour, consumption, housing, leisure, culture, and so on. Even if, at least in London, we have refined the art of ignoring one another as we do it. 
But when the ground that the city has its very foundations in is governed by a land system that increases the value of this ground through abstract financial forces, this land system and these financial forces start to leak into everyday processes of the city. It starts to affect our labour, our consumption, housing, leisure, culture, and it can skew these processes. It becomes harder, impossible even, for certain groups of people to take part in city life. From the rent paid to live here to the price of a pint, it all reflects the cost of the land that that building, whether that be a house or a pub, that you are in has to cover, has to generate in order to justify being there. Not being able to afford a pint is one thing, but when you and your home are seen as at odds with the value and the speculated value of that land, we start to confront the apex of this problem. For instance, in the report, City Villages, More Homes, Better Communities, Lord Andrew Adonis said that a number of central London council estates were blocking some of the most valuable land in the world from being developed. What we see now is city planning aiming to eke out as much profit from every square footage of the city as possible. So things like community centres, public libraries, art studios don't tend to generate profit in comparison to things like offices, luxury flats hotels, bars and restaurants. And even though that's at quite a big picture level, I think it can also be seen, and many people might have experienced it, more in the sense that if you're renting and if where you're renting is a two-bedroom place with a living room and a kitchen, but your landlord has turned that living room into a third bedroom, what they've done is they've taken a third social space and turned it into a money-generating extra room for an extra tenant. And that's equally as symptomatic of where we are. I think it's important when thinking about these quite abstract things like land, the market, capital and profit, to zoom out and remind ourselves how these systems came to be and the choices made to reach this particular point. And so we start this conversation with Alistair by hailing way back to when the feudal system came in place. A nice way to begin with it is to kind of almost rewind all the way back to the kind of the very, the basis of where where our land system comes from, um, because and effectively, and of course, there's no clear cut answer to that. Um, but a good way of thinking about it is, broadly speaking, it, it has its roots in this problem that. Uh, uh, that medieval kings have, right? And and uh, which is a kind of niche that I can our, really relate our, to yeah, that sort lives, of problems. Yeah, exactly. First world <laughs> problems. No, not even that. It's medieval king problems. Uh, and the medieval king problems are, broadly speaking, um, uh, how do you uh, how do you keep up? How do you do defence and and keep an, uh, and, and military campaigns without paying for a standing army? Because standing armies are really expensive and they have a habit of turning on you, right? And also connected to that is simply the question of how do you, you, in an era before computers or anything like that, how do you rule over a nation, right? How do you, how do you exert power over a body of people? And, and um, the solution to this emerged, but the, 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 it was the Frankish kings who perfected it, and particularly in our lives, it was William the Conqueror, right? So William the Conqueror conquered the UK in 1066, and he introduced... Uh, the feudal system, where effectively he's like, right, how do I square this circle? How do I square this circle of I need of, of military campaigns and defence spending without keeping a standing army? And the answer was a piece of paper. And effectively what he did is he said, right, you, you, you barons and earls and powerful people, if you promise to be loyal to me and to uh, lend me soldiers 
uh, whenever I need them, um, then in exchange, um, I will grant you a piece of paper which grants you your own personal fiefdom, basically. And in your own personal fiefdom, you have the right to raise taxes to as high degree as you can. And those taxes are rent, right? So rent was the original tax. There was no other tax at the time. Uh, rent was the original tax. And, and in theory, what you were doing was, as, as a kind of a tenant within this hierarchical system, in theory, you were paying uh, for military protection. And, and that you, you kind of are. But you could also say it's a bit like it's the kind of gang, it's a bit like gangster protection money as well, because it's like whoever's got the most swords on your patch is going to extract extract money from you just for letting you stand on the ground. But then what happens over time is that broadly speaking, again, going back into the world, the the the, the uh, yeah, medieval king problems. Basically, if you're a medieval king, there's only really a, a three groups of people that you're scared of, which is your own family. Um, as we learned in school, it's other medieval kings um, and, it's, and, and it's your barons, right? It's your earls, whatever you call them, right? Um, and, and because of that, that, because that group of people, um, those nobles had such sort of power over the king, over many, many years, essentially what we've seen is uh, this kind of slow process, particularly later through the common law system, of trying to of, of extracting greater rights and greater protections. And, and the thing that the, the landowners managed to pull off over time is they said, hey, by the way, excuse me, Crown, would you mind levying taxes directly on people, please, and leave us just to take this other form of tax? So effectively, rent over time, it's, a, it's, a form, it's the original tax, but over time what happened is it became effectively privatised so that the crown levies its taxes from people's work and their labour and their activity, and instead, and, and to a large extent, um, rents are, are left untaxed. Which is what it does. It then obviously creates this kind of um, this a a asset that that commodity, that piece of paper, becomes a really, really valuable thing. And that piece of paper is what we call land ownership. I think you know the the, the one of the you know most famous economists for talking about land was Henry George. And he very, very cleverly sort of articulated the extent to which, and, and, and I, mean, I think we mean this when we say the word feudalism, we infer this, it's only really one step away from slavery. So he has, he has this kind of very clever um, way of framing it in, in, in his, his book called Progress and Poverty, where he sort of says, well, if you imagine an island with 100 people on it, you can make one of them the owner, owner of the other 99 people, or you can make one of them the over, owner of the land it really makes very little difference because one way or another, that one person will extract the fruits of their labours. But why is it so important now? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because, um, and that is actually a question that's been asked because you, you sort of over the course of this slow kind of process of, of if you like, gradual reform or gradual democratisation of the system, we never really reformed it. Whereas in France, they had a revolution <laughs> which is quite horrible, um, and they, they officially ended feudalism. We never did. We've just sort of, we've just accreted at it slowly over time. So instead of the, you know, so there are more landowners now than there were then, right? So instead of having one person ruling over the 99, they made it, okay, let's have 10 people ruling over 90 and so forth, right? Um, and of course, what happened at a certain point is that those, those land rights, those pieces of paper became tradable, um, and of course, once they become tradable, 
they also become buyable. And so that's really powerful because then it gives you the ability to effectively buy your freedom from rent. So that's what you're doing when you're buying a house. That's why we call it freehold. Freehold isn't as in it costs money. It's you're buying out of, of rent. So you're, you're becoming a, an owner. If you own a, a house worth £400,000, say, you know, lucky you, um, that basically almost all, mo- the vast majority of that is not the house. It's just a heap of old bricks. Um, it's, it's the right to live there in that location. And it's that location that gives it its value because it's got good schools, good infrastructure and so forth. People, there's this, understandably, within this feudal system, there is this yearning for economic liberty, right? And so what that does is it creates effectively an infinite demand market for debt. So when we arrive in the 1970s, the deregulation and the, and the computerization of the banking system comes into play and they realise, oh, wait a minute, we can create as much debt as we can, almost, as we can write, basically. And so debt, banks started saying, hey, we'll create cheaper debt. Interest rates come down, we'll hand out more debt. Of course, people could borrow more, that meant, that meant they could pay more. But their desperation was just the same, or even more. And so the house prices went up. And the result is that since the 1970s, house prices have gone up. What is it? It's almost like something like 4,000% since 1971, like mental inflation of, of house prices. And of course, because we have this inflation of house prices, and because we have these rights whereby landlords can just buy, essentially they can buy the right to just extract taxes from people for nothing, Right? Once you've bought that, all you need is money and you just get free money. Like you don't have to do any work. My, you know, so someone's understanding, my understanding, there's a housing crisis, there's not enough house, houses. If we build more houses, the housing crisis will be over. You would say potentially is flawed. Yeah, that's it's a complete myth. And I mean, to be honest with you, that that has already been pretty well debunked by the government's own analysis. Um, so it it does. What happens is if you, it's one of the kind of big myths, and it's it's really difficult because intuitively you would think that it's supply and demand, right? And therefore, if you just increase the supply, that what that does happen on the short term. So if you go into a specific neighbourhood. That basically there's a finite number of buyers over a given period of time in a specific area. So, uh, and this is how this was encountered: is that basically developer the land speculators, developers realised that if they built a load of houses and then dropped forty houses onto a local neighbourhood at once, the the people who were looking at that time had more negotiating power, so the price would come down. So they worked out that it's much much cleverer effectively to build these homes and then you're trickling them onto the market much more slowly and that's called the that rate at which you can do that without distorting the local property prices is called the absorption rate and so that's one of the reasons why it's rational for them to build to release homes really really slowly basically the business model is really simple it's buy land get planning permission maybe build some homes or just sell it on for someone else to build the homes um and then and then sell it for more than you bought it for and what you usually do is it, essentially it's like ticket touts at a concert. What you do is you the smart money is that you you buy it and then wait, right? And the longer you wait, uh, you wait for that kind of uplift to happen, and then you cash out. Um, and 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 the result of this, the combined net result of that, affects all of our lives, right? It's the reason why we have massive undersupply of housing. It's the reason why we end up in this paradoxical situation because the truth, you know, the truth is that's that's the that's the business model that is creating our cities and our, and our houses. So actually, it's really, really weird because it means that we put ourselves in this really weird position where even though we know how to design really beautiful, sustainable 
prosperous places, this system is basically designed to do the opposite because <laughs> it has a really good incentive not to. What quite a bit of research has shown is that over, overall, I think it was something like if you increased... Um, don't, don't, you have to look this up, but I think if, if you increase the total supply of housing by, say, 2%, you only get a 1% drop in house prices. So that's, it, it does have some effect, but it's very, very low, right? That doesn't account for the massive explosions in tens, hundreds of percent price increases that we've seen. Um, so I'd like to just dwell on that point a little bit because I would imagine there are quite a lot of people who would be listening to this right now who would be quite surprised at what you just said earlier about the fact that the increase in the supply of homes is not going to solve the housing crisis. Because for many people, that's what they think is the solution, right? And actually, this question of land and all the issues that we're talking about right here are absent. Okay, so I can see from what's said why more privately developed housing wouldn't solve the housing crisis, but why wouldn't state-built and supplied housing, like council housing, solve the crisis? Well, I mean, there's two factors on that. One, at the moment, the way that social housing is priced is tied to 50% of market rate, so it still goes up. Okay. It's not yeah. tied to incomes, and there's been many people reasonably arguing that it should actually be tied to incomes. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the second thing is that... Um, Yes, that would be a solution if you're genuinely talking about a Britain in which 80, somewhere between 80 and 100% of people, you expect 80 to 100% of people to live in social rented homes. And I'm like, well, at that point, why, why would we be doing that? Why would, we, why would we ask councils to build all the housing? Wouldn't it make more sense for council, if, if land is the problem, why don't we just let councils hang on to land and then essentially license the land on different terms and let all kinds of people build the houses so you don't have all the housing built by the state. Um, But you could have all the land licensed by the state. In other words, we could change the terms of the land ownership. So so either way, I think you arrive back at the same same point. Um, It's like trying to tackle a land crisis by building homes is 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 a really kind of you entering at the wrong end of the system because you haven't really understood it. It's startling to see that building more homes is not only mistaken, but could even be harmful. House prices would need to fall by 50% in London and southeast of England to become more affordable. Moreover, building to meet demand is infinite, while so many homes are bought as investment, including from overseas. Since the 1980s, personal wealth such as pensions, and wider economic and commercial structures have become so wrapped in property that significantly decreasing house prices could lead to a financial collapse. For instance, our banking system relies on house prices going up. House price inflation has been encouraged as a metric of economic success. Alongside this, we've seen some really interesting political responses in London, particularly after Grenfell. We've seen a push for good design for new developments and campaigns like Home for Londoners and Good Growth by Design. But underpinning these campaigns and what the conversations around land highlights is who gets to be a Londoner, who can afford the price of the ticket to gain access and of those who can, how much of their monthly income goes on being a Londoner, on the rent they pay, or as Alistair calls it, the tax of being part of London. (laughs) 
why does the land system affect how open our cities are? I think in the most obvious fundamental way, which is what's the, what's the ticket price on the door, right? In the, in the sense that the, the vibrancy, the cool thing about cities is the idea, and that, that's such an important part of so many stories and films and books, is the idea that anybody can rock up at a city and they can start trying to make, make their way. Effectively, the city is a proxy for the idea of trying to enter society and, and make your way in society. And so the kind of threshold for entry, the, the, the kind of cost of entry and the stakes involved are, you know, what it's about. So a city that um, actually anybody can move to and actually, you know, you're obviously not going to be living in the best housing, but at least the housing is basically okay and you've got, and and the money that you're spending on that housing is going back round and being reinvested into social care systems and um, R and D grants and all the sorts of cool things that you know might help you realize your dream is very different from a city where actually just to take part you're giving away um, more fifty or sixty percent of your monthly income to live in a tiny um, mouldy little cupboard or cage that it's the difference between those two cities and actually what's really interesting is the the cool quarters of cities right you know so take your you know we're we're both in east london now so take the kind of quintessential example of somewhere like hackney or shoreditch right why do those places originally become cool it's because initially it's low there's low rents usually there's leftover industrial buildings and there's low rents so the artists move in because it's an open city it's an open neighborhood and the artists move in and then, of course, what happens over time is that then becomes cooler and more established people then move out and through the land system, they start to capture that value. And then ironically, at a certain point, the rents go up and it kills the very openness that created that value in the first place. That's absolutely correct. And it is a pattern we are seeing all over the world now. I think some bored journalists might even have labelled it the shortage effect. I think it is worth unpacking the word cool here though and its relationship to land values. Terms like cool or creative are values which society attributes to things, people and places. They are not inherent fixed qualities, rather constant and subjective, determined by the market and media more than anything else. The market works by commodifying our desires and when an area reflects these desires back at us and it can be accessed through spending power, an area becomes desirable. In regards to the processes Alistair just described, it is the value or the cool we attribute to artists, art, communities of colour that is as important as the low rents of the land and therefore housing and commercial spaces which attracts them there in the first place. For obvious reasons, this gets even more messy because it is those communities who are the first to be violently displaced and traumatised when the land value increases. We've talked about the land system and how the ground that we stand on is governed by the system of laws and financial forces. But where does architecture fit into the system? As Alistair said, the cost when you buy a house, but three quarters of that is the land it stands on. So this would suggest that architecture doesn't feature that much. On the other hand, you've got someone like Frederick Jameson, who in his book Postmodernism or the Cultural Logic of Late Capitalism, says architecture is so interwoven with social relations of land, commissioning and speculation that it is the most capitalist of arts. The relationship between architecture and land is unavoidable, 
Buildings need foundations in the ground, and as we have established, this ground, or this land, is governed by a land system which is driven by these global financial forces. I think that this is most apparent when an area undergoes change, also known as urban renewal or regeneration. So alongside um, infrastructural changes, the area will also probably undergo an aesthetic and architectural change. New builds spring up from the most unlikely brownfield and infill sites. Industrial space is repurposed as space for lifestyle and consumption, like bars, restaurants or the famous New York loft conversion. Um, Homes are bought as renovation projects or as investments to rent out. And all of these revolve around a certain design, this aesthetic, a look that indicates an urban lifestyle that is desirable, commodified and profitable. This aesthetic code also plays out at really micro levels too. It's in the design details that are the offshoot of architecture, such as the style of the windows, the colour of a front door, the font and graphic of signage, even down to the lighting. All of these seemingly mundane details accrue to become aesthetically symbolic of what is desirable. And as we know, desirability affects prices and prices affects who can afford to take part in urban life in that area at that time. What Emma illustrated so well in her episode and what Armand so succinctly described earlier is how architecture and places or areas in our cities are inextricably related to types of people because this architecture and these places are our homes and they're the backdrop to our everyday lives. So how these places and these buildings exist in culture and in the market has a huge influence on the lives of the people who live there and would call that their home. I think where Jameson's earlier quote falls short, and hopefully where our understanding of the land system has added, is that architecture mirrors the current system that governs the land. So if land is governed differently, architecture, I think, would still be political, but it wouldn't be a tool or a pawn in the current land system. So... I want to go back to what we were talking about a bit earlier in the episode about the fact that this is obviously such a foundational issue that is affecting so much of what we see wrong in our society, but no one's talking about it. And not only is no one talking about it, but no one seems to be doing anything about it. So, as I said, it's it's absence from the discourse and it's absence from policy. So why is it that nothing is changing? Why aren't we talking about the transformational reform that is needed to solve this land crisis? And what do we need to do to get to that position? It's really hard because it's sort of uh, it's sort of like asking fish to have a conversation about water, right? This this is the operating system that we're all on, and it's really hard to change the game while your players on the board. And I think this also goes to the question of politics. Yes, there are things, maybe we can come on to those, but actually even for them, it's really, really hard because they too, you know, political parties, they too are players in a game, right, on a board. Um, and, and it's very, very hard to, to reform that while your player's on it. People, and there's, there's a whole generation of people who've essentially invested all their savings into property uh, and they're essentially using being a landlord as kind of their pension. So it's really, really tricky to extricate our, our, ourselves from it because everybody has such a huge loaded vested interest one way or another in the current system. So the other question we've been asking ourselves is, if this is really a system, 
what could we do to redesign that system? And for us, one of the interesting questions we're asking ourselves, and it's not just us, there's lots of other people doing really interesting experiments, looking at the success of things like community land trusts and um, places like the island of Egg in Scotland where the community were able to buy back their own land effectively, so the community collectively owned the land. It's a bit like the idea that you own your home, but the the, the neighbourhood collectively owned the neighbourhood. Um, and um, so... Uh, looking at, uh, at some of the dynamics of that, I think one of the interesting things is to what if we were to go back and, and revisit the terms of ownership, I, what's written on that piece of paper in the first place. And so we're experimenting with this idea called fairhold, which would be a new form of ownership, which effectively separates all the good things that we like about ownership, like security of tenure, from possibly some of the other bits that aren't very good about tenure, which is the, like, the right to extract taxes or the right to sit on it without paying dues back to the community. You know, and then you take it to the next level. And again, uh, uh, there's an economist called Josh Ryan Collins who was talking about this in the context of COVID and, and high streets. Um, there's a really interesting proposition in there, which is what if the Bank of England were to effectively buy, start slowly buying all the land back? and then leasing it back to the people who are currently on it. So that might be a softer way of transitioning our society and our economy off this 11th century feudal model towards something that is more like a 21st century uh, land system that better fits with our values and our aspirations of the 21st century, which are prosperity, liberty, sustainability, looking after each other, human well-being, and so forth. We now go to Anurag, chairman of the Community Land Trust, Russ, in Lewisham, who will shed light on how things can be done differently. I went down to Lewisham to see the site in early December. Um, it's a little noisy in some parts, so bear with it because Anurag has some amazing things to say. In, a sort of, in as much of a nutshell as you want, what is a CLT? I think essentially a CLT is a way for a community to kind of um, to empower itself. So it's uh, people come together, mm-hmm. uh, they form a group around a common purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, it's land or access to land or access to the ground, so to say. Um, and then they they draw up a, they draw up an organizational you know uh, structure, and they start lobbying local government or landowners to transfer that land to them in trust. So in our case, for example, uh, Lewisham have transferred this site to uh, Russ on a lease of 250 years, um, subject to quite a few clauses and covenants. But I think the gist of it is it is now for us to run and manage and demonstrate that this piece of ground will become homes for future residents at Church Grove. Why would Lewisham give it, if they can profit off it so much, Yes. why would they hand it over to a community in trust? Uh, these are small sites. Mm. These are sites that a developer would not be able to make a profit from. Uh. They are sites at a scale that is not attractive either to the local council yeah. or because, you know, it doesn't deliver the number of homes to the amount of work okay. or for a developer because it would not deliver the level of profit. In our circles, it's called... Uh, what CLTs deliver is additionality. So we are helping in we are helping in solving the housing housing crisis mm. by delivering additional capacity, de- delivering additional homes. We are part of the solution, but we are not. You know, we are not a very big. Of course, we are not. We are not 
volume house builders. Yeah. We can't be. So sites like these or sites, for example, the PFL has a small sites program where they are now releasing small sites all across London for uh, self-builders and community-led organizations mm. to develop. These are all small. There is a real recognition that community land trusts can deliver additionality. Uh, they need support. They need a lot of support. Yeah. But, um, you know, they're what they achieve is quite phenomenal. This, I mean, and you've, you know, would you yeah. describe the, the site? Yeah, so um, we're at Church Grove, uh, southeast London, um, about two minutes' walk from Ladywell Station uh, at, the, at what one could call, I suppose, a cul-de-sac. Uh, so we have the road behind us, and in front of us we have the Ravensbourne River uh, that forms the, uh, what would you call it, the northern edge of our site. Um, so our site is sort of, if you can imagine, a, a, a dumbbell kind of shape yep. on each side of this dumbbell. You know, so the clear bits of land. We have two blocks of flats, yep. uh, each containing each containing apartments of different tenures. Okay. So what was very important for us is that for us, uh, we wanted to reflect the local population. We wanted to reflect the variety of ages, the variety of abilities, and the variety of incomes. So what we have is 100% affordable in perpetuity is the jargon word for it, which means uh, Russ will make sure that, you know, uh, when you enter the scheme, you have an affordable flat, and that the next person coming in, when the person who wishes to leave, leaves the scheme, uh, they will also have an affordable flat. So we try to capture that affordability mm -hmm. so that, you know, it's not buffeted by sort of land prices and, you know, rising values. But what will be very unique about a development is that uh, in front of these two buildings will be a walkway that connects the entire project, which is really deep and generous. Mm -hmm. And I think really that is, that is really the expression of what Russ is about. It's about community. So these walkways are over two meters wide. They get even deeper at entrances and the entrances are very wide and yeah. generous so people can pause and meet up, have a chat. All the walkways will be maintained by the residents we have uh, it'll be planted it's, it's they're planted walkways mm -hmm. um, we have uh, we have our offices we have a small office oh, planned in it nice. we also have a communal laundry planned in it as a place to meet uh, other people because you know large items of washing and I mean having a communal laundry is a great way to meet people so good and then what we also have which we're very very happy about is we've got a small uh, we've got a small one bed not a one bed apartment it's almost like a small studio flat that okay. is that is uh, for people, for example, if you had a one-bed flat and you wanted some guests over, oh. you know, you could put up yeah. your guests. You yeah, could yeah, put yeah. up your guests in this small flat, and that, and you know, it would be on the register, and people could sort of um, register, book just book it in yeah. when they like. Exactly. So that's the communal bit. But interestingly, if you just come around the corner, yes. you go to it later. We've also got uh, as part of the scheme now. I don't know um, if you recall, but a few years ago we completed what we call the Church Grove Hub, which was a community space that we uh, crowdsourced um, with a very generous uh, amount of helping from the Mayor of London. Nice. It was really good, and so it was a self-built project built by the volunteers with yeah. the help of some uh, the help of some health and safety experts. And then if you look around the corner, that's our, that's the Church Grove Hub there. And we could probably visit it a bit later. Oh, wow. So that contains, that has now become, I mean, COVID struck, which is a bit un, really unfortunate, but uh, it, is, it is our offices. <laughs> yeah. It is where we have the 
Russ uh, School of Community-Led Housing because Ooh. Russ runs a School of Community-Led Housing. Okay. So that's where our workshops and seminars take place. And uh, we have a business plan. And even that business, within that business plan is also the um, proposal uh, to rent it out free of cost to the local community for coffee mornings or mothers groups or whoever might find uh, some use for it. So that, you know, and that will be part of the church growth scheme. It'll be integrated into it. What's really interesting also about the church growth scheme is uh, we'll also be providing a communal playground. And the way the access is designed is that uh, we envisage that people will be able to move freely down church growth towards the river and back mm. into the hub. I mean, it was very fundamental, you know, in our governing principles. Um, we have 10 governing principles, which you can see on our website. But fundamental to it is that, you know, uh, we want to create sustainable neighborhoods that are not only economically and environmentally sustainable, but also socially sustainable. And to just recognize the resource that, you know, the biggest resource mm. in all this is us people, you know, and, and people. I was going to say, what do you mean by socially sustainable? So socially sustainable for me means that you are invested in the place you live in. Yeah. Uh, it is a resource for you. It's a place to make friends. It's a place to uh, learn skills. You know, it's a place, you know, where you don't feel sort of the pressure. I do think ultimately, you know, for something to be social sustainable, socially sorry, sustainable is that you have to feel safe. You have to feel that your health and well-being uh, are, you know, I wouldn't say protected, but your health and well-being uh, is not compromised, that, you know, you are able to grow as a person. And, you know, growth is so linked to the relationships we have and, you know, the spaces we inhabit. So, you know, creating that ground for, mm. uh, you know, for you know, working together and mm -hmm. living together, uh, you know, goes a long way in being socially sustainable. Yeah. What we can see is that there are fissures and openings that allow for alternative ways of owning and managing land. And from here, very different physical and social infrastructure can grow. Um, and I think that projects like Rust give us hope of what we can achieve when we don't just think about the difference in design, but also in the difference of ownership and management. Thank you to Alistair and Anurag for donating their time and expertise to this episode. This episode was written and hosted by Zoe Cave and Armand Nouri and created by the Open City team, including Merlin Fulcher and Ruby Maynard-Smith. It was edited by Ed Ryman. The Open City podcast is made possible thanks to the support and donations from people like you. For just £1.25 a week, you can help keep the conversations going to make the city more inclusive, accessible and open. Go to open-city.org.uk forward slash support. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.